When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Hello and welcome to the latest episode 20 of the Market Watch by Amplify Live. And as ever, I'm joined by head of trading, Piers Curran, to talk through some of the major news topics of the week. But before I begin that, I'd just like to say, Thank you to everyone who's been listening. I just had a look at the counter and we've had just over 20,000 episode downloads, Piers. And just want to say thank wow. you to everyone. I hope there's been some value out of our ramblings, uh, what we have every Friday morning. I even had a random person throw the Wayne Gretzky comment at me yesterday. <laughs> and I was like, wow, people are even going through the back catalog. So yeah, amazing. I hope you, you've enjoyed them so far. And one of the things you might have recognized earlier this week was actually Eddie and I jumped on and had a midweek session. So instead of it just being a Pearson on a Friday, it was actually obviously lots of action happening on the meme stocks and AMC. And Eddie, I know, is fantastic at breaking that stuff down. So um, we'll continue to do that going forward. So if there's any other breaking big developments during the week, we'll endeavor to put out uh, an interim podcast aside from this regular chat on a Friday. But Piers, how's it going overall? All good? Yeah, good. I mean, as a, as a um, sort of undercover maths geek, I do like the symmetry of that. So 20th podcast, uh, 20,000 downloads. Um, and, and just sticking with the two theme, but one, one thing that happened to me this week, I've, I had my second jab. Oh, yeah. F- fully jabbed up. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm getting my first on Wednesday. So the, the people can do their guesstimations on our age differential, I guess. 
I think, I think, yeah, I think if you do that, you might draw a conclusion that our ages are actually um, further apart than they actually are. I think my area has been well ahead of the game on the jab front. I don't know why, but um, you, you can talk your book if you like, but there's no, <laughs> there's no detracting from the the matter of fact. Here. But then, but anyway, that the, the um, good that you you're fully immune, immunized now, and um, and I can see you're in the office as well. Much going on in the city at the moment. Uh, well. Uh, not too, it's still the same. I was here last week as well, just kind of doing one day a week. Yeah, nothing really changed between last week and this week in terms of people out and about, I wouldn't say. Um, so, I mean, the thing about London is, um, for those of you not in London, uh, what's happened over the last week is we've had uh, temperatures ratchet up like to the late 20s and... One thing about living in London is this is a nightmare because we're not we're just not geared towards hot weather in terms of air conditioning and stuff like that. But more to the point about the city and people in the city, one of the absolute worst things about living in London in the summer is is if you use the underground um, in hot weather. It's it's just it's inhumane. Um, there's there's European laws that prevent animals getting transported in that kind of those kind of conditions, and so. Um, I think the hot weather's just kind of, yeah, that working from home with, with your shorts and flip-flops um, has come quite hey, that, that's more attractive. Uh, that, the heat on the, the age of the infrastructure of the London Underground is our heritage. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I'd just, I just like to make everyone aware as well that I can see that you've, you've taken your microphone, which is quite large, into the <laughs> office. So were you packing that on the tube? You might have scared a few people, I would have thought. Well, as I said, we 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 travel as one. <laughs> you know, I, anything for you know maximizing audio quality. It's all for the, it's all for you listeners. You know, I do whatever it takes. <laughs> and on that point, as you know, given it was episode twenty, I've marked that occasion by giving myself a microphone upgrade. So hopefully, no more echo. I know there's been a few people have called me out on that. So. Hopefully we're we're rocking and rolling now. But look, let's get let's get down to it. So three key themes this week I'm going to discuss the meme stocks at AMC. I want to talk about Russia cutting its dollar assets and what does that mean just generally on a broader geopolitical level? And then OPEC Plus meeting took place earlier this week and what exactly happened and what can we expect going forward. So let's kick it off with the surge in AMC. <laughs> That's enabled this movie movie theater chain to sell equity on more than one occasion as it tries to shore up its balance sheet. So I'll give you a bit of background here on a few different things. Firstly, AMC collected just short of $600 million on Thursday's share sale, which came just days after it netted about $230 million by selling stock to Mudrick Capital Management. The company have also said they're going to be asking investors for permission to sell 25 million new shares in 2022 and you know good conversation with eddie if you go back to the previous podcast and he was saying about you know the winners and losers out of this deal the company being one mudrick capital being another and, and so on but percentage wise and what i wanted to ask you about was it was was more on the price volatility so we've had a bit of a breakout in amc shares on the 25th of may and we're trading just under 15 bucks they hit a high this week just under 70 bucks so we're talking about a near 400% move. But if we go back just to the beginning of the year, 
What what do you think AMC's share price was at the beginning of the year? So they've hit 70 bucks this week. Ooh. Ah, that's a good question. I uh well, because I've had that, I've got I've got a sort of side um tracker portfolio, not that I'm invested in, but stocks that I are on yeah. my radar, right? And that's been in my, that's been <laughs> in my bucket for well, really, since the was it like even well when GameStop the whole thing happened earlier in the year, but okay, now you're asking. I'm going to go for, I, I don't know. So I'm going to go for a guess of $2.50. Not bad. $1.97. Okay. So, so they're, up over, they're up over 3,000% 3, on the year. So yep. just, just a small move that we've seen. Decent. But, but, but I mean, one of the things here was that we've got, We've got a, our first of a group of summer analysts joining us on Monday. And um, during the normal pre-start comms that we have, they're kind of all onboarding. And I've already received lots of questions about AMC, you know, how can I trade that? What do you think about the short position total and all this sort of thing? And it makes me a little bit nervous about, um, I guess, new entrants to market. I'm not going to say young people. I mean, that probably is the demographic, but I don't want to be offensive, but I know a lot of people, it, when you see this type of, I mean, one of my friends said he put 80 pounds in Doge and three days later, it was 1,500 pounds. And he was like, you know, this is ridiculous. And it's just that type of situation that makes me slightly nervous. What do yeah. you think? Well, that's such a good example because the important thing in that story is what happened next. So once you've taken $80, and turned it into fifteen hundred bucks, like bang. Then what do you do next? Is it is it right? Okay, I'm brilliant at this. I've really got a, a natural skill. Okay, where where's the what can I buy next that's going to give me whatever the percentage return on that is five thousand percent return? Um, and do you then take all fifteen hundred bucks and go again? Put put it all back on red, um, backing the next thing. And fine, if you, you might make money from that as well. But then I think in, if you then continue thinking this is easy, thinking those kind of returns are normal, then I think in the end, you'll lose it all because it's not normal what's happening with some of these assets. And you know, because you got one right doesn't now mean you're an expert trader. And in the end, without understanding the mechanics of how price behaves and moves and what drives it and without being disciplined on the risk management side, you know, because what happens if the next bet, 1500 bucks on something else, what happens if you start losing money? What happens if it's down to a thousand? What happens if you buy AMC at $70 and then a few hours later it's trading at 40 and you've lost half your money? What do you do then? Um, so I think you just got to be super careful and, and learn, you know, do your, just because you got one right doesn't mean you've cracked it. Uh, and actually quite the opposite. It's super dangerous because if you think you have, you're in real trouble. So I think use some of that money that's kind of come your way via almost like a lottery win type scenario and actually invest it in yourself by now actually seeking out some proper education in, in markets and, and how they work and how they function normally. Yeah. Well, look, there was, um, I, was I was thinking as I was going through the, the week, Where's Elon Musk? It's been, you know, he's been awfully quiet 
And it's like we had this string of tweets that was really impacting everything from his stock price to the whole entire crypto sphere over the last fortnight. And, uh, you know, he, he never fails to deliver. And so it's a Friday. And I'm sure he just wanted to you know, shake things up a bit. And he tweeted simply, um, hashtag Bitcoin and a heartbreak emoji. <laughs> With a meme picture, which basically was a reference to a lyric from the song In the End by Linkin Park. And... Lo and behold, Bitcoin sold off 6% overnight. <laughs> and yeah, I just thought, cool. I, I was kind of saying this in the briefing that I was delivering early this morning. I never thought in my career I'd be talking about heartbreak emojis as part of my <laughs> global macro rundown uh, of what, what matters in markets. But you know, we are talking about a, a crypto space that obviously take a bit of a hit, but it's a trillion dollar market. And then we're talking about a stock that sits right up there, the echelons of corporate size and index weighting in, an, in a major stock index. But um, yeah, any, any yeah. thoughts on, well, on Elon uh, at that point, at this point? Well, as we said a, f- a couple of weeks ago, the, the problem with trading things specifically like Bitcoin is that you're at the mercy of one man's thought and comment. And that one man is unregulated and can have a thought or a comment and, and spread it across the globe at any moment of any day at any time. And so, you know, here we go again, Elon with that. But look, I, bottom line is that Bitcoin, as we said a few weeks back, has corrected lower and it's currently trading at, well, what, just 36,000 or, well, 36,700. Um, but I was saying that really it's so hard to call direction from here. And I was saying that technically, if we stay below, the, the range is 42,000 down to 30,000, 42 down to 30. And I think that's the range, and we're still in it, and we've been in it for a couple of weeks or so now. And really, the next move for this coin, is it back to the top or is it further crashing down? Will just depend on which of those levels break first. Is, it, are we gonna, are we, is this Elon Musk thing going to take us back to 30,000? And if, and if so, right, that's a quite a critical moment. Um, what I'd say with AMC, just kind of back to that very briefly, I know you talked about it with Eddie, you know, just in terms of the, this whole thing around options trading and the gamma squeeze. And, you know, I do think with AMC, this time, was different, even though in one respect it's the same, you've just had a massive spike in price. I do think that actually this one is different to the last one in terms of what's happened and who, the winners and losers out of that. Um, and, you know, because like at the start of the week, AMC was trading at $30. Then it spiked to, let's, I'm going to round up these numbers, right? So it went from 30 to 70 um, in one day. Uh, Next day, drop from 70 down to 40. Then the next day, it's like 40 back up to 70. And then yesterday, 70 back to 50. It's like, what? What? What, what, what is the value of this company? And actually, certainly it's not being derived off fundamentals here. And what I would say is, so what we had was a really you know, massive disparity between the call options volume and the and the put options volume 
Okay, so you had a lot more call options being bought. So that's just investors who are speculating that the price is going to rise. And if it does rise, then they will profit from that through the use of this options derivative. Um, but of course, you need you can't buy a call option without someone selling that to you. Okay, so these are these are the these are the industry heavyweights who I would say kind of got caught out earlier in the year when that first GameStop thing happened. Sure, they were wrong-footed. It hurt them. They weren't prepared for that kind of situation. They are now. So what happens is with these market makers, I'm talking like Citadel, I'm talking like Jane Street and so on. They're on the other side making markets. So if you're buying a put option, it's like Citadel selling that option to you. Okay, But these are market makers. So they're now at risk. So Citadel, if the price of, of AMC goes up, then they're at risk, right? But what they normally do is hedge that risk by buying put um, call options as well. They're, they're sitting on both sides of the market as a market maker. They're buying call options and they're selling call options, okay? And actually, all they're doing is they're, they're profiting the spread between the price they're buying at and the price they're selling at. And they're buying and selling because they're facilitating trades of other people. So they're just taking tiny little... Uh, margins of profit off each of those transactions, and they have no market risk. They don't, they, they don't have any risk to the underlying share price because they're hedged. Okay, Now, that's fine. And what's happened actually in the last week is, or no, last few weeks, is the spread between the buy and the sell price that these market makers are putting out there. The spread, as we call it, is tightened. It's got narrower. What does that tell you? That tells you that these big market makers are fiercely competitive over the over winning these huge new volumes that are coming through on the options market. Okay, so that narrowing of the spread means they are making loads of money and they're prepared to fight for that volume by narrowing their, their margins. Okay, so that, that's one thing to say. That hadn't happened earlier in the year. So these Citadel, they're definitely coining it in off this move. Now, there's one further thing. This time, normally that's fine. You hedge off your, your kind of, short call and long call by, by, by over the spread, right? But what happens if there's way more buying of call options? So your customers are buying way more calls than they're selling. So you're providing the other side of that. So that means Citadel are selling way more calls than they're buying. So they can't hedge exactly, right? So what happens is they can't hedge with their other options positions. So as the price of AMC goes up, this is this gamma squeeze, situation. So their gamma risk is increasing as the price of the AMC underlying stock approaches the strike price of some of these call options. Okay. And as and as the price is approaching the strike price and the gamma risk is increasing, these market makers are forced to hedge by bar- actually buying the underlying stock. So of course this then drives the price even higher. Right, and as the price goes up even higher, you're getting more call strike prices being reached. You've got more than gamma hedges by people buying that stock, and so this was a gamma hedge squeeze, if you like. Um, the episode this week that took the price twice up to seventy dollars. Now that can't that 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 buying power is probably done now because there's only there's only a there's a finite amount of call options, right? Exposure. And there's only a finite amount of hedging that is required. And actually, as the price comes back down, the, the need for that hedging it kind of goes away. So I think this week, particularly in AMC, this volatility has actually been a function of the, of the options volume 
and really nothing to do with the Wall Street bet guys, kind of the retailers buying the stock. They, they've really got nothing to do with this particular rise. Not, not to say they're not benefiting from it, because they are, um, if they're getting out up at 70 bucks, of course. But yeah, so, so I think the, this, this moves different to earlier in the year, in that now you've, you know, these, these big, you know, giant financial institutions have now figured it out, and they are now profiting from these price volatilities. So, so in, in the end, the suits win then, yeah. either way. <laughs> well, yeah, they do. But also the retailer, you know, if you're buying the underlying stock, it's not a zero-sum game, right? If, you know, if the retailer's coining it in at the same time, well, great. But unfortunately, there are loads of retail traders that are buying at $70 because they think it's going to go to 1000 That's that. So that's, that's the mindset where you're going to lose all your money. If you think that AMC is Ethereum, um, then, then you're wrong. And so if you buy at 70 because it's going to go to 1,000, then that's where reality has detached itself. Yeah. Well, good. Look, I, I've always admired your ability to break down things like a gamma squeeze into layman's terms. So um, <laughs> long may that continue because I think you are, you're the best at that by far. But let's, let, let's move it on to... Uh, the second topic for debate, which is the fact that Russia earlier this week said it would eliminate the dollar from its oil fund to reduce vulnerability to Western sanctions. And of course, like everything that happens on a state level when we're talking US, China, Russia, timing is obviously key. Putin is going to have his first summit in two weeks' time with Joe Biden. Um, to give it a bit of context, the market actually did see a bit of movement when the headline came out because it kind of sounded like, what, Russia's dumping its dollar assets? And looking at it from a superficial level, you would think, wow, this is big news. And the market did actually see initial knee-jerk reaction. As ever, though, in an intraday noisy environment, I think you've always got to think, and this is one thing we always have taught our macro traders, was that you know context and be aware of then the underlying information aside from a headline initial reaction to determine basically, is this move going to be something more long lasting or would you get reverse? And we saw reverse pretty quickly, but Russia's wealth fund currently holds about 35% of its liquid assets in dollars. And from a value perspective, that's about 41.5 billion US dollars. But what was interesting is that after the change, the fund's assets is going to be held in 40% euro, 30% Chinese yuan, 20% gold, 5% in yen and British pounds. And so just wanted to get your take really on what, what you thought about this. I mean, I had a few views in my own, but I haven't spoken to you yet about this particular subject. No. And how, sorry, one, one question. Over what time period are they going to engineer this, this change in asset allocation, do you know? So what, what we know so far is Russia can make the change within a month, but it's up to the central bank to determine whether to adjust the distribution of its overall reserve holdings. So somebody, so they can do it in a month. Are they going to do it that quickly? We yeah. don't know. Okay. Well, look, a month is that's, that's a very short amount of time. Yeah. Um, 
to kind of implement that type of radical shift in asset allocation. I wonder whether, I mean, the timing of this is obviously, uh, it, it's not lost on me that the summit with uh, Biden is coming up. And so this kind of news, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like, it's, almost, it's very Trump-esque, in fact, right? Just before a summit, <laughs> let's ratchet up the kind of the rhetoric uh, and, and so that when the summit arrives, you know, you're almost, you're starting at a point that's that's quite a long way away. And then you kind of negotiate and you bring it back and you go, okay, we won't, okay, fine. We won't sell all our dollar denominated assets. We'll keep some of them. All right. And then you end up in a position that's actually really good for, for, for Russia, but the U S mm. feel like they've, they've got a deal out of it as well. Mm. Um, anyway, so that's one thing, but look, I'd say that this is very sensible for Russia you know, over the long term, because, you know, I'm definitely of the opinion that the, well, globalization as we know it, or as, as we knew it, um, has peaked and, we, and we're changing. This world's changing and I, the pandemic's accelerated it. And I say peaked, I don't mean the pandemic is the result of that peak. It's actually, I'd go back to 2016 and, and Trump, being elected and Brexit, you know, I definitely mark that on the map as being that moment where actually, you know what, these big economies are now pulling back and, and protectionism and nationalism is now, you know, coming back to the, the agenda in, in the West, you know, in large democratic um, economies like the UK and the US. So anyway, the pandemic accelerated that. And that's because the pandemic destroyed supply chains. And then it just made massive companies really vulnerable if they're dependent on global supply chains. So, but I think from Russia's point of view, you know, I, I do think the, the US as being the dominant economy, the dominant force in the world is in decline as well. And with that, and this takes decades, but with that, the dollar will, will lose some of its dominancy in global trade. And so, you know, it's only natural then that a strategy for a government like Russia is to, you know, start to change up the asset allocation to better reflect their own risks and exposures and to better reflect the, the changing times of, of this, this global economic system. If I was if I was Putin, I'd be absolutely chomping at the bit to get a photo opportunity with Xi Jinping right now. Yeah, just to throw a little reminder in there. And you know, Russia are way more dependent on China. It's economically, I mean, China buy a lot of their oil, right? So Russia is way more dependent on China than they are on the U.S. So this is a good point from an infrastructure point of view, I think, because China, it's not just Russia needs China. China needs Russia. Because there's the Silk Road, there's the overall yep. ambition of global trade. Russia strategically is a very important transportation route going from east to west, servicing then through into Western Europe. And a lot of that economic kind of tra um, route, trade belt, it's critical that that relationship is solid. And I think, you know, these are the steps towards cementing that type of long relationship. The other thing that I thought was, a little bit more out there was about this whole situation that's been happening and it's gone quite quiet in the global media um, is the whole Belarus thing. That was obviously a big thing a few weeks ago. 
And then we were talking at the time about the strategic importance of Russia and the pipeline that feeds then through Belarus into, into Europe. And it's just interesting coming out of dollars and pivoting then into, say, Europe, 40% in euros and 30% in Chinese yuan. And this idea about, again, I guess um, securing the, the, your own position in a way with the strategic partners uh, and with America, it's always been quite anti-Russia. And we, we talked about this before, and I, I think it's definitely true. My feelings are that I think the market really has got it wrong with Biden on what our initial assumptions were prior to the US election and what he might have meant for the global economy and global partnerships and trade. I remember everyone was talking about China were going to be really scared because Biden was going to unite the Western allied forces again as a united front, a, a move out of protectionism back to right. a more unified force. And what you're saying, and I agree, is this is not the case at all. I mean, you mentioned about the technology stocks um, in China that, that the US have come out and they've now trying to invoke new rules about intellectual property rights and all these types of things. And it's yeah. almost like you said before, the dial got moved by Trump and Biden's just had the benefit of just keeping that where it is and with those domestic focus in the next 12 months, most likely, it's unlikely that he's going to move and, that dial. Right. Well, actually, you say move the dial, keep, it, keep the dial where it is. I mean, you could even argue he's, he's tweaked it even further just with this news this week mm. that he's looking to ban uh, US um, investors from investing in, uh, I think it was 59 different um, Chinese companies. Um, uh, and, you know, this is about that whole thing about U.S. capital. And I think his line was, look, I want to prevent U.S. capital from being used by China to undermine U.S. security. And he's kind of got a point. <laughs> you, you know, there's a lot of capital that's been, come from the U.S., you know, pumped into these businesses to help them grow because it's a great investment opportunity. But then, of course, it kind of circles back and you're like, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe this isn't good for the for the greater nation from a security point of view. And this kind of comes in this perfectly. This is a perfect example of what I mean about globalization has peaked. Globalization as we knew it has peaked. And now you're getting these episodes where we're, we're kind of turning away from that more and more. And I was kind of looking at there was a really good article in The Economist, actually, uh, this week, one of one of their leaders, which was just talking about globalization in the last 20 years. And how, if, if we're at the end, well, what's next? And there were actually, there were some amazing stats about the last 20 years in terms of who's benefited. And it's actually the US and China. Um, some of the stats are crazy. Like, for example, um, uh, so 76 of the world's 100 most valuable firms uh, are either US or, or Chinese. Um, in, in the year 2000, Europe had 41 of the world's 100 most valuable firms. That was in the year 2000, they had 41. Now there's only 15 in mm. Europe. And then looking at the last 25 years, the 19 companies that were created in the last 25 years and are now worth more than 100 billion. Okay, there's 19 of those that have achieved that. They started in, in the last 25 years, they're now worth more than 100 billion. Um, out of those, Nine are American, eight are Chinese, 
So that's 17 of your 19 right there. How many are European? Big fat zero. So actually what's happened really is that the US and China, they've been much better at what we call creative disruption, which allows the economy a freedom to rip and grow. But, you know, you, it's about competition. And it's about competition being able to overtake and surpass and succumb. But you've got to, you've got to be prepared to allow companies to fail in that environment. And this is where the great kind of liberal labor market system in the US is perfect for this, right? Companies can hire and fire whenever they want. And if a competitor comes along and does it better and you start losing money, okay, you go bankrupt, right? Everyone, eh? right, go and get jobs at these, these new guys that are doing it better. And you get this, this creative disruption. I think one of the problems that Europe has had in this last 20 years is that it's less about short-term you know, profit-making for the shareholder uh, it's more about long term and it's more about the employees. You know, labor markets are incredibly rigid in Europe, for example, in terms of hiring and firing and the power the unions have. And that's held Europe back for the last 20 years. But I wonder, you know, now that this has all changed, because what's going to happen now is if globalization is finished, we're well, not finished, but we're, we've changed direction. Well, then a lot of these big multinational American companies, they're so dependent on global supply chains. Um, and, and if they want to onshore a lot of this because of COVID has taught them that they can't be so reliant on, on global supply, you know, the changing geopolitics also means that they can't be over-reliant on getting stuff from other countries anymore. And so I think, you know, onshore, if you're looking at like the big tech firms, for example, like Apple, 53% um, of Apple's revenue is from selling hardware iPhones, but they manufacture all those. All those iPhones are manufactured elsewhere, um, and you know a lot of it's well, a lot of it's manufactured by Foxconn in in China and and, and Taiwan, for example. Um, in terms of their supply chain, they've got two hundred companies that supply them Apple from from all over the planet. Um, so they're quite vulnerable. I say Walmart was quite an interesting one, actually. Yeah. Well, so well, one other thing is just with Apple, while it's fresh in my head, I remember when Trump was negotiating and putting tariffs on various different degrees on China. Do you remember Tim Cook was part of those top level state to state talks? Right. And he was actually given a pass where actually trade for Apple was not subject to any conditionality between the two countries, which I found amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that, so that goes to show two things. Number one, how dependent Apple are on that global supply chain, particularly coming from Asia, particularly from China and Taiwan, number one. And then number two, the power that these big tech firms have. I mean, they're right at the top table. They are more powerful than governments. And I think in the end, that's a problem for them. And so that's well, a big look, risk. Just, just, just look at Jack Ma, but enough right. said. So there you go. Okay. Um, the other one, Walmart, just outside of tech, I was really surprised to read that Walmart get 75% of their products that they sell in US stores. 75% of their products come from China. So in talk, wow. talking about companies that are vulnerable to the end of glo the, the globalization as we knew it, and how difficult is it for them to reverse that? Well, companies like Walmart, it's a nightmare. Um, Amazon are better off 
in that they don't, well, Amazon, two thirds of their revenue comes from the US. So actually they're, they're, they're less dependent on, on international revenues than the others are in terms of the big tech firms. And of course, they're not, they're not manufacturing their own products. Um, well, mostly. Um, but in terms of the winners, because if this onshoring trend happens, and this is a long-term thing, I think one of our listeners was saying, you know, how'd you come about, how'd you start, how'd you come up with investment ideas? How'd you come up with a thesis about what should I be trading? What's going to go up next? And of course, the time frame you're looking at is incredibly important. And so whilst AMC, fine, that's like a intraday trade. Um, but if you're looking on the opposite end of a scale, which is big secular trends and themes, well, then this is a really good one, I think, that this move to onshoring. So that means big companies looking to manufacture their stuff at, at, on home soil instead of manufacturing it in China. And I think the big beneficiaries would be people like, one thing that's quite interesting is um, industrial automation. So if Apple want to manufacture iPhones in the US, but not have to pay way more money to do so because US wages are a hell of a lot higher than Chinese wages. Well, then one way to do that is to have much more automation in that manufacturing process. So you're not paying a robot a salary, but you are paying for the robot, which is a big upfront cost. But then you can write that off over the longer term, right? And you end up with a, basically a workforce that doesn't get paid a salary because they're robotic. So, so the robots the robots are made in China, presumably. Well, so this is a good point, except there are US robot manufacturers. And so one of them um, is called Rockwell Automation. So that's a US-based um, industrial automation business manufacturing robots. So like that, that's an idea, right? For the next decade, right. type, companies like that or, or like factory real estate owners, you know, if you're going to need, if onshoring, well, these guys, Apple will have to manuf they're going to need a factory for this stuff, right? So who owns the real estate that these factories are on? Or it might be steel producers, US steel producers, um, like Nucor, for is, Yeah, is there many of those left? <laughs> I right. thought China there, had There are some. The biggest one's a company called Nucor, yep. N-U-C-O-R. So yeah. yeah, you're right to say, are there any left? Well, there, some survived, right? The, the, the nuclear kind of... It's just like bringing out your, your 1950s Mustang, <laughs> revving her up. And she's like, and you're like, oh, yeah, let's get this show back on the road. We're busted off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think this over the next decade, I think this is a theme. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out, how quickly mm. this reversal of globalization of the last few decades, how quickly that reversal takes place. And there's a hell of a load of geopolitical risk plotted all the way along that that curve so it's going to be really yeah, interesting it's, it's interesting I, I i totally get the automation side because the cost perspective i just wonder from a psyche point of view how long that shift would take for the realization that the cost of goods would need to go up I mean, it's not going to be a smooth ride to then full automation that price costs could or the base could remain low and so there's kind of this national perspective of which I think resonates particularly in the environment we live in now and probably will be in the coming years. But at what point then does that sacrifice you as a consumer saying life is tough and it's, you're going to make it way tougher. And as much as I prefer not to be victimized by competitive nature, competition from China, I need to put food on the table and survive. So yeah. 
it's like order Maslow's hierarchy of importance. I need to eat and live and have a roof. I just, I just wonder politically how palatable that shift is. But as you rightly said, this is long term. These yeah. things aren't going to take and time. The, and the people that will win this battle are the profitable companies because they'll be able to afford, they've mm. got the cash flow to afford to make these onshoring adjustments without rising the prices of their products as much as their competitors might have to. And as long as you've, you've got, the, so the most profitable in the sector, obviously, is better placed here. And it, so it doesn't necessarily mean that prices are going to have to rise across the spectrum and consumers are going to have to pay more for everything because it's a competitive world. And it's dog eat dog. And, and the, the profitable businesses will be able to win more market share to the consumer's benefit. And that's that, you know, that, that, that's that whole thing that I was saying earlier um, about creative disruption. Hmm. So it's, that, it's allowing that inevitable cycle of, of businesses coming in, competing, being better, and that kind of cycle, which, which kind of, turns the the economic engine in the short term i can't help but think about something like earnings season where as you know listed companies there's so much weighted importance on their forward-looking financial performance right and seeing then um yeah increasing market share isn't a good offsetting measure over a period of time as you accumulate more market presence but in the short term, it, you know what investors are like from a behavioral point of view. They're not thinking about now. They're thinking about the future and what you're saying that profits might decrease as we pivot to offset rising prices. It feels like a bumpy road yeah, ahead for, sure. for the for the benefit of the greater good for perhaps some of these domestic-based names. But yeah, what I really like about that was your explanation about have that macro top-level view about some of these big geopolitical themes that are, are definitely ongoing and then reverse engineering it down into, okay, not just an apple, but what contributes then all the parts that make apple what it is and what, what are the, the complexities around that? So I think that was a good, good tip. Um, but look, let, let, let's go on to the final one and let, let's keep this fairly swift, but OPEC yeah. plus meeting, uh, they went ahead earlier this week with a plan of monthly production increases until July, but refusing to give too much or information or clues about what they're going to do thereafter. So just to give people context in May, the cartel, as we call it, um, rightly or wrongly, added 600,000 barrels a day extra in May. This month is going to add another 700,000 barrels a day. And in July, they're going to add nearly 850,000 barrels per day. So the point being here is a very agreed, tentative, slow reintroduction of crude from the supply decrease that they all agreed to on the initial onset of the pandemic, obviously given the demand destruction that we saw at the time with the global lockdowns. So interesting comment, the Saudi energy minister, why is he important? Well, as most of you will, will, will recognize Saudi Arabia. Well, the OPEC structure is a whole number of different countries, but there's definitely a hierarchy of power that's basically held by Saudi Arabia from an OPEC point of view, and then Russia as, a, as the plus in this relationship. Uh, but Saudi's energy minister said, quote, there will always be a good amount of supply to meet demand, but we will have to see demand before we see supply. 
Right. So that, I mean, that says it all, does it not? As to explain, and we'll talk about Iran in a moment, but why oil is trading at a multi-year high and it's had momentary pullbacks, but we're in a nice trend higher at the moment. Yeah, they've played it well this year in terms of getting that supply right, getting that supply side right. And it's, it's the perfect strategy, right? We're only going to increase supply if we see demand strengthening. Because obviously the last thing they want to do is increase supply just because, well, politically within the cartel, we kind of agreed to it, so we're going to have to go ahead and do it. But if they increase supply and the demand's not there, well, price is going to drop. No, they won't. That'll, that'll hurt them. So I think they've done it very well. Um, and I think they will continue to manage it well. And, and it's clear that they're not prepared for prices to go down. And, you know, we're trading at the highest levels we've seen since October 2018. You know, WTI crude's pushing at the 70 buck level. Brent crude's up at 71.60. These are the highest levels we've seen, yeah, as I said, since 2018. And I don't see a reason why we can't see oil stay at these levels, if not continue to push on. And they'll continue to push on if the global reopening um, from the lockdowns um, carry on happening. And if, you know, as long as the, the Indian variant, if you like, doesn't reverse a lot of that, then that demand side should pick up. And then, you know, OPEC will, will slowly increase supply in line with that. Yeah, and further evidence on that demand side, obviously it's US is super important to that equation. And this week, yesterday, in fact, we had a trifecta of data Jobless claims sub 400K, first time since the onset of the pandemic. Obviously, further vaccination leading to then, as a consequence, further reopening. The ISM services PMI, record yeah. high. And in so, fact, um, the ADP number blew out expectations, exceeded then even the most bullish estimate on the street, nearly hit a million. And 90% of those jobs of that near million in ADP came specifically from leisure and hospitality. Yeah. So the US is reopening yeah. at pace right now. Absolutely. And that's, that's not only good for US economic growth, but it's also good for global growth. Even though I've just been talking about the end of globalization, that thing's not going to turn the corner anytime soon. So it is still the case that global, sorry, US consumption absolutely is is rocket fuel for economies um, around the world. And so this is why, you know, oils, even though OPEC have been saying, right, we're going to hike production in coming months, people still think the demand increase will be greater than that supply increase. And that's why oil prices um, stay elevated and, and I think will continue to be. Yeah. And on, on that final point, Iran's nuclear talks, um, diplomats initially were suggesting a deal by June, um, it got to the beginning of June, people were looking for a deal, <laughs> they'd almost started to price that in. Actually, oil was dipping about two weeks ago, and obviously it's had a pretty consistent rally last week and a half or so, um, because they, they've adjourned those talks. They're reconvening, I think, next Thursday on the 10th of June. Uh, but also this week, the International Atomic Energy Agency, so the IAEA. Oh, that one. Yep. That one. Yep. The one that no one actually knows what it means, but the IAEA, <laughs> these guys are very important because these guys are kind of like the external 
um, inspectors. So yeah. when we think of that Matt Damon film, when he goes in for the, was it the WMDs and he can't find anything. So he would go in with the IAEA and they're doing these in a slightly less dramatic fashion. This is part of how do you keep an agreement with world powers in Iran? Well, there needs to be regular checks that need to be met, that they're declaring how operational certain sites are and the levels of uranium enrichment, these types of things. But basically, the IAEA put out a report this week, Iran has failed to explain traces of processed uranium discovered at undeclared sites, not one, sites found in their latest report. So for me, an Iran deal, I mean, if you're just looking at it from the previous end of how that relationship was broken by Trump, cultural differences, uh, domestic financial issues that Iran's facing. There's also political events happening in Iran in the coming weeks. I can't see a deal getting done as well anytime soon, quite frankly. I think it was wishful thinking it was going to happen without any hiccups. Um, yeah. So another supportive factor, I would say, yeah, I mean, um, that's happening. Um, Matt, Matt Damon. I'm just trying to get my head around. Jason Bourne works for the IAEA. Wow. Who knew? <laughs> That's the most interesting thing about that story. In so much <laughs> as it's not going it, to, they're not going to make a deal. As you, as you said, these things, very hard to get done. And it, I, they will make a deal possibly, but I, I mean, not anytime soon. So yeah, that June, that June's, schedule was always wishful thinking and i don't think it's important for things like the price of oil you know it's a, there's way bigger influencing factors than, than that so what's so what's quite a recurring theme here maybe a takeaway from this this particular episode is actually understanding geopolitical timelines is quite key so when is biden meeting putin or when is biden meeting xi or yep. xyz basically by having at least an awareness of these milestones on your calendar, you can start to possibly anticipate then the type of news cycle yeah. and the peak and trough and timings around potential um, short-term market kind of yeah. direction in, off of those themes alone. Like obviously, there's other things going um, on. And one thing for right now, or it'll probably be Monday, actually, is G7 finance ministers are meeting this weekend top of their agenda is to an, is to agree a uh, global taxation um, system and for the big tech firms like the googles you know we pay we pay google but we pay them in ireland and do they take pay any tax on that nah but that may well be coming to an end and that's not a good thing for these that are the profits of, of these giant tech firms. So that'll be an interesting um, outcome in the G7 finance ministers meeting this weekend. So really good, just to really cement home that point then, a report came out according to sources overnight, Biden has offered to scrap his proposed corporate tax during negotiations with Republicans. Basically, he's looking at dropping the tax rate at 28%. We knew that was going to happen because he's yeah. going to start hiring Paul back. But specifically, he has said, we want to go after multinational companies like Amazon, who don't pay any tax, and implement a minimum 15% just before the G7, and also facilitates his domestic 
situation. Yeah. We're trying to bring the Republicans back to the table to keep infrastructure talk alive, which is very important as a component for keeping markets where they are, I guess, to a certain degree. So timing is not random here Absolutely. in a lot of this stuff, for sure. So cool. Well, look, we'll wrap it up there. Um, I've let, I'm going to jump over now. I've got an, another call talking COVID. And, and Piers, you're not allowed to call it the Indian variant uh, anymore. Sorry. It's they're referred to in their code names of gamma, delta, so on and so forth now. Apologies to India. Um, so we, we still call it the Kent variant, though, don't we? Yeah, or, but funny enough, you're, you're still allowed to call it the Kent yeah, variation. How does that but, work? Um, yeah, go figure. But no, I think the Kent one actually has a code name as well, as a matter okay. of fact. Uh, actually, look, just while we're here, the Kent one is called Alpha. Right. The South African one is called Beta. The Brazil one, Gamma, India, Delta. Okay. So, right. there, so, so yeah, Jason Bourne theme is concurrent yeah. through our entire delivery. Alpha, so cut, Beta, so had, Gamma, Delta. So we've had our Gamma squeeze on AMC stocks. Now we're having our Delta squeeze on COVID cases. Boom, boom. <laughs> and on that note, we'll wrap it there. We'll wish everyone a great weekend and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Piers. Bye, guys. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.